Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Sounds, you know, it's easy, but it's always to have goals. And once you reach those goals, to have new goals, because, you know, like being famous is not a goal, I, I think. You know, anybody can be famous. It's not, you know, if you really want to be famous, maybe that is your goal. But being, you know, having a goal is really, I think is really, really important. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is exciting today. This is really, really, really exciting. My voice sounds even worse than it has in the past. It's not your imagination. I have something that's going around, and I don't know the name of it, but I will try to not put you to sleep. So firstly, I want to thank all of you again. I know it's a broken record, but I can't really thank you enough for all the emails, all the texts, all the... Facebook messages, the tweets, the FedEx packages that you guys sent me. I have been heckled by my own devices of telling you what to do. I just looked through a Facebook account and for some reason something was locked and, and not working properly. And I found messages from 2013 when I started on and just incredible messages of people telling me how this podcast has helped them. That's that's why I do it. I love this. This is one of my favorite things to do in the world. And it's compounded by the guest that I have today, Ileana Douglas, who I've always had this wonderful, wonderful feeling about from the moment that I met her. And it's an odd thing. And I don't even know what it is because I think it's the fact that when you notice somebody that's so authentic and so original and so unique, not just in the way they talk to you and the way their voice is. You know, remember that show, Name That Tune, where you, you could literally just name a tune in one note or two notes or seven notes or whatever. When Ileana Douglas talks, you can name her voice in literally one note. <laughs> and I think that's important and authentic for any comedy voice. And I call her a comedy voice, and she might say, well, you know, I am not just comedy, I'm drama, I do everything. Remember that, Barry. But... 
in my mind, whenever somebody starts off their career as a stand-up comedian in a New York comedy club, I forever think of them like Michael Keaton as somebody whose roots are blessed and rooted in comedy. And so when I think of her voice and any comic's voice, if you think about it, anybody who's worth anything in comedy, you can recognize their voice in seconds. And if you can't recognize their voice in seconds, then chances are they will never fucking make it as a stand-up comedian. And that's just the way it is, you know, from Ray Romano's voice to Jerry Seinfeld's voice, I mean, to Chris Rock's voice, uh, to my guest, Ileana Douglas's voice. And even though she's not doing stand-up comedy, again, I look at that base. But I think about the journey of somebody who took that trek and how fate is very strange and how our paths crossed. Chances are... She started doing some stand-up comedy when I was in New York City. But I never saw her there, and I don't remember ever seeing her there. And I was entrenched in that scene. As a matter of fact, stand-up New York is a very, very fascinating memory for me, as it is for her, because that's where she started doing her shows, and that the owner, Carrie Hoffman, you talk about risk, and you talk about things that people do in their lives. I'm just going to talk a second about Carrie Hoffman, the original owner of stand-up New York. He cobbled together any money he had because he was a journeyman actor and actress. He had tried putting on off-Broadway shows, and he did everything he could with his vision of setting up this comedy club on the Upper West Side in New York City. On 70, I'm going to say 76th or 75th Street and Broadway. And he came to Boston to do a showcase with me. I put on 17 acts for him. And unbelievably, I had one of the first acts that worked at his club that first week that Rosie O'Donnell worked and Mario Cantone and a college comedian named Tim Satimi. And the guy I put in there was a late Rich Seisler, a really great comedian. But Carrie always took risks. And recently, unbelievably, you talk about you starting as a stand-up and moving on through these things. Carrie Hoffman found out that his real talent, believe it or not, of all things, was singing Frank Sinatra songs. Mm -hmm. And now he is touring the country in theaters all over the world as Frank Sinatra, doing a Frank Sinatra show. And so, again, I look at him, and, and, and at, at a certain point of his life, you know, most people say, I can't change, I can't take the risk, I can't do that. And... You know, fate has a way of changing things. For Ileana Douglas, the crisscross for me and the fate that happened with me was I was fortunate enough to work with Jay Moore at a time when people wanted him to do television. And he didn't want to do television because he was getting offered a lot of movies, one of which uh, he did uh, right after Jerry Maguire that Ileana Douglas starred in, Picture Perfect with Jennifer Aniston and Ileana. And so I knew her just of being on the set, but I didn't really, you know, when I was on a set early on, I wasn't the kind of guy who was like trying, hey, God, I gotta meet her, I got whatever. <laughs> I would just stand in the back and I didn't really say anything to her and I just watched her from afar and I was just blown away by the authentic voice, the authentic acting skill that she had and an authentic look that no one had in the world. Just an unbelievable, unique person, like a, a triple threat, uh, shall I say. 
So when it came time to action and Jay going back and forth with Joel Silver and Chris Thompson, the executive producer and writer and creator of whether he was going to do it or not, and he finally agreed and got invested to do it. At that time, or right before we came on, there was another actress that was very hot, probably the hottest she ever was, which was uh, Vivica Fox or Vivica A. Fox. And Vivica had been doing a lot of movies like Jay, but more successfully, I believe, in the not only in the African-American market, but crossed over into all different genres. And sometimes what's weird is that you're working on a project and somebody has a first choice for something. And then it doesn't always work out that way. And you think to yourself, oh, boy, this is bad. We didn't get our first choice. So before we came on, what we'd found out that there were rumblings that Vivica Fox was the person that was offered this particular role that Ileana Douglas was up for. But as fate would have it, uh, in the past, if I'm not mistaken, and Ileana will elaborate on this later, she had been at certain uh, events with Chris Thompson. You know, you're, you, you've, sometimes you're at events, and if you're an actor or an actress, or I don't care what profession you're in, I don't care if you're in the service industry, you show up, you go to places, you go to events that involve the people that are in your profession because you never know what's going to happen. Neil Brennan once said to me on this podcast, he said, every single thing that's ever happened to me that's brought me success happened from hanging around a comedy club. But what he's essentially saying is show up, hang around, go to events. And when you know it, Ileana Douglas, I believe, is taking some kind of a shuttle from some award show, and she's just sitting there, and there's Chris Thompson. And they start talking, whatever, and, 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 and they meet, they have a dialogue, and, and entrenched in his brain from the moments that she spent with him, which if you were to spend any moments with Ileana Douglas, it would allow you the opportunity to fantasize about moving in with her because that's the kind of person she is and she makes you feel. You immediately feel in your heart. Like I always felt it's a horrible thing to say because I'll have to go to human resources. I'm not crying right now. I'm just, is that there's certain women that you meet and you just think to yourself, God, I wonder what that would be like. I wonder what that would be like if I was in that person's life, if I was a part of, that world if I was there with her. And so anyway, to make a long story short, Vivica Fox didn't happen. They couldn't make the deal. They couldn't figure it out. And the vision that Chris Thompson had in his mind was the woman he met or at least spent significant time with on a shuttle bus. And he was so taken with her, he didn't ask her to test for the role. He didn't ask her to come in for a chemistry read in lieu of a test. He just said, you know, I want you and I want you to do this. And there was a meeting at a hotel with flowers <laughs> and Chris Thompson and Jay uh, sitting down and, and, and putting on the full court press to, to let her know that they wanted her and she accepted. And to me, the show Action, what we're talking about now, is one of the shows that is well ahead of its time and it only did 13 episodes on Fox but it's the kind of show that would hold up today and I think the lesson here is a very simple lesson in that fate can be a disastrous thing but it can be a wonderful thing and somebody's loss or something that somebody passes on can be somebody's success but if you don't show up if you don't hang out 
if you're not around the people in your industry that make a difference, you're cutting your percentages of success way down. So get out there, meet people, don't be an asshole, and show the best side of yourself, and hopefully that side will be the one that will get you where you want to go. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. So I want to talk about your film career and how you got into film and how you ended up meeting one of the great loves of your life, the genius I talked about earlier, Martin Scorsese. Yes. many. I've been lucky. I've met many geniuses. He was the first or maybe second. But of many geniuses, yes. Um, well, that's when I was working. My first, again, my, you know, I was in, I'd gotten out of acting school and doing some, um, you know, off, off Broadway theater. And I got into a company of actors that a lot of them were working as assistants at a, a building called the Brill Building. Of course, famous building on New York on Broadway, I believe. Yes. And at the time, this was 1987, there was, people were, you know, Jonathan Demme and, uh, Warren Beatty and Elaine May were cutting Ishtar there, and Marty had offices in the building, Paul Schrader. And um, there was somebody in the company that was working for this director named Frank Perry. And Frank Perry, uh, was his office was next to Peggy Siegel, publicist, very famous publicist. And, were, and her, she had an assistant, and that assistant was actually going to work for Marty and they recommended me because they said, Oh, she's, you know, she's got like showbiz, you know, she's, she's very personable and she's got like an encyclopedic knowledge of show business, which I did at the time. I sort of knew everybody. And so I got a job, you know, working there in the office and it was an amazing job working behind the scenes. We did films like uh, the untouchables, Beverly Hills cop two, Midnight Run. I mean, it was you know those years. And when you say we did, what were the, what were you doing? And when I say we, I'm believe me, I'm like no. A, but what was the I'm office doing on those? Uh, uh, Peggy Siegel was doing. Oh, you're doing the publicity. Got it. Was I, doing yeah, all of the it. publicity for uh, for those films. So and when's the, the first time you met Marty Scorsese? The, you call him Marty. Uh, you're the, like the only person well that I've met in my life that just it's a, like a, this loving term of endearment. I'm sure many people call him that, but it's just you have this thing that it just feels like you know when you say I'm going to Marty's house. Yes. You don't know it's Martin Scorsese, so that's the whole thing. Well, what's funny about about uh, Marty is that you know I was a fan. <laughs> I mean, my favorite Marty movies were King of Comedy. Of course, I have the After I have a Hours. Picture of it right you know, there not in my case. the hits, not like I mean, I was like eh, Raging Bull. That's all right, Mean Streets. You know, like not that those aren't brilliant films. Of course, I know they're brilliant films. But for me, as a woman, I was like, oh, King of Comedy. I mean, After Hours. I those were the my favorite Marty movies, and I love New York, New York. And Alice doesn't live here anymore. So, but anyway, he was. He worked in our building, and I, uh, he was very, you know, an elusive figure. He was somebody that had a long-term 
relationship with a publicist named Marion Billings. That was his, he, it would have been Peggy's dream to represent Martin Scorsese. And the other thing is that working for Peggy, I mean, again, in those days, you know, we were so respectful. Nobody even knew I was an actress. I mean, I was like, for all intents and purposes, I, I answered the phone and write press kits and helped out actors. You, if you were, I mean, it was unheard of to try to like push your own agenda as an actress. But, uh, this girl who worked for Marty, they, they had, you know, they were auditioning people for Last Temptation of Christ. And in a, again, a ridiculous circa as if I were in MGM move, I had these pictures taken of me. This was the era of a designer named Kenzo, where it was like everything was wrapped in a headscarf. So I had these headshots taken of me wrapped in a turban. And I sent them over there to the casting person. I said, look at how good I look in a turban. I should be in Last Temptation of Christ. Of course, nothing happened with it, you know. But on my resume, because I had nothing on my resume, I thought it would be funny under special skills. I wrote blood-curdling screams (laughs) and great legs, milking a goat. And everything else ever done in the world ever. That was like my little. I was like, I had one thing going for me. I was like, maybe, maybe if they go to the bottom, they're like, eh, it's kind of funny. Maybe she does have good legs. Maybe she milks a goat. You know, like I, I throw it against the wall, and they'll bring me in. So, sure enough, I'm working for Peggy, and I had gotten a little bump. Frank Perry one day they had li- literally forgotten to cast a small part in a movie called Hello Again came running in you're an actress right i was like yes uh, i'm an actress who answers the phone he goes no i mean do you you know i need we forgot to cast this part in a movie you want to come yell at shelly long i was like uh yeah can i peggy can i and then what's even more bizarre he was like do you have a monologue (laughs) (laughs) i was like i do have a monologue so i went his office did a monologue next thing i know i'm he's like i'm taking her peggy Got me out of the office, went downtown, Dwayne Street, putting me in clothes, hand me a stroller. There's your lines. Go yell at her. I'm long this long. Very nice to meet you. You know, like I'm in the, I'm like, okay, that's over. Okay, cut. Bring her back up. I got my SAG car. I was like, this is unbelievable. They had to Taft-Hartley me, as they call it. Fate is an amazing thing. Taft-Hartley, you want to explain that to our audience? Because it's a, a... It means that when an extra suddenly speaks and they are not in the union and that becomes a fact after they have already spoken, it means you have to Taft-Hartley them, meaning they are automatically now in the union. So that is and how then, I got my union And then card. the next gig you get that pays money, you don't see that money because they delete your yeah. money and put it into the union dues. But that is how I became a Screen Actors Guild member yelling at Shelley Long. So this story made it around the building. They were like, I heard this crazy Frank Perry literally was like, you, you're going to be in my movie. And I was like, well, it wasn't that but it was kind of like a like a story like a publicist had made it up but for the first time people had this awareness that like oh you're funny you're an actress you're an actress well they also wouldn't have that awareness if frank perry hadn't come through the office and said oh she did a really great job possibly yes possibly i never thought of that i think definitely oh well thank you but 
the so I sent my resume over to Marty's assistant, and she says, "It says here on your special skills, blood curdling scream. Do you really have a blood curdling scream?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, I really do." And I said, "Yeah, I did this play. <laughs> I'm at work." Like my boss, I'm like, I said, yeah, I did this play, and the director said you have this amazing scream. You should put it on your resume, blood curdling scream. And then she's like, no, I'm serious. I was like, yes, it's blood curdling. It's horrible. It's blood curdling. She goes, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you down because they need to dub a scream for Barbara Hershey in Last Temptation of Christ. They need to dub a scream, and you're gonna go down at five o'clock today and scream for Martin Scorsese. I've never met the man. I'm. I'm like, oh, okay, sounds funny, you know. Five o'clock comes, go down the third floor. Five o'clock comes, Peggy. Um, do you mind if I go downstairs? Oh no, 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 never would have. De- that's was this was all done they, they, behind Peggy's back. So I go down there, I meet, you know, Mr. Scorsese at the time and his editor and all the people that are there, and there's like this laughing, like, oh. I said, no, I'm serious. It's really like you want to put the mics and they're laughing. Like I said, no, it's really bad. It's like blood curdling and and they're laughing and yucking it up and stuff. And and I was like, whatever, Mr. Scorsese. So I get I get up behind the mic, you know, and I thought, okay, this better be really, really good. So I, you know, I like prepare I said, I'm gonna prepare. And they were literally like in almost stifling laughter. As I'm like, as I'm preparing, and I sort of make myself cry. I do my scream, you know, total silence, and then burst of applause from everyone. Marty goes, "That's horrible! How do you do that?" I go, "I work for a publicist. It's pretty easy." <laughs> big laugh, get a big laugh. She's great. She's great. He says, "Okay, we're now we're not doing the scream." We're doing this loop group. He goes, can you come tomorrow? The fight. He's talking really fast. A bunch of people with crowd noises. You want to do some crowd noises? And I'm like, absolutely. I walk upstairs. I'm like, what is a loop group? I have no idea. What does that mean? So I go down, and there's a bunch of people there, including Michael Powell, a pretty famous British director, one of Marty's you know mentors, married to Thelma Schoonmaker. And one at a time, we're... We're in this crowd and we're like, kill the Romans, you know, doing crowd stuff. And then it was very silly. Like then Marty was just like, "Uh, you just come up and just people were saying different things. And uh, then we were doing joke. We were doing like, you know, as if it were Godzilla. He was making people like, he said, do like bad Japanese <laughs> dubbing and we're doing all of this and then he goes um you and he kept picking on me to come back up and do something else and the next day uh that you know his assistant said you know Marty really likes your voice you know he wants you to do more stuff in the you know would you be willing to do it there's just gonna be no money and you know you just do these little voices and everything but they because they can't they couldn't they had to you know there was all this controversy with the film so anyway i go I, so this became this like three week long uh work I, I couldn't work during the day but i would come down and you know while they were putting up different reels um you know we would i would talk about a director of film and we so we started bonding over things like that I always I give a lot of credit to Mel Brooks because I had had this 
comedy album gr- growing up, 2,000-year-old man. And there's a routine that he and Carl Reiner do, which was like a family favorite that my parents always used to do about, I'm going to go save France. I'm going to go wash up. You go save France. I'm going to go wash up. And so at one point, it was like we we're coming up on lunch, and Marty was walking out the door, and he goes, I'm going to, you know, he's got that New York accent. He goes, I'm just going to go wash up. And I said, yeah, I'll go save France. You go wash up. And it was literally like, you know, Walter Matthau and the odd couple, like his back just went, how do you know? It's a 2000 year old man. How do you, how do you know that? How do you, how, you're so young. How do you know that? And I was like, I said, Oh, the astronaut routine. And then we started doing the astronaut routine. This is my favorite line. You know, he's like when Carl Reiner says to him, you seem it's still to this day. I think my favorite two lines in comedy, he goes, you seem, you seem ill-equipped to be an astronaut. <laughs> and Mel Brooks goes, what are you talking about? I got the gloves and everything. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. Anyway, he, so, <laughs> if you if if you're out there listening and you have never ever heard the two thousand year old man with Carl uh, Reiner and Mel Brooks, the best, just go to whatever device you have or old vinyl uh, retro store and get the album or download it or do whatever. Yes. One of the absolute uh, Mount Rushmore of comedy routines. Yes. So in the midst of this... Now, they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did you know? No. Oh, God. No. I mean, that's... You now, know. how old are you and how old's Marty now? I'm not good. This is 1987. Uh, if you had to this? guess. 23? And how Maybe. old is he? In his 40s. Got it. Okay. Late 40s. This is like a 20-year difference. But in terms of, you know, are we compatible in terms of, like, talking about movies? It was, like, you know, nonstop fun. And also, you know, he was was married, so I wouldn't have ever thought—I mean, I hate to sound naive, but it's like I would have—it would have never occurred to me, oh, he's— were in sync or simpatico i wouldn't have thought that way but there comes a point in time where you have to be as a human being that occurs sim- when we're on a day i'm like he may actually like me no i have low self-esteem <laughs> we're in bed together he may actually like me <laughs> that's i have low it's called low self-esteem no but there has to be a moment where you say to yourself <laughs> okay there's something's happening here and i didn't think it was well as we're working and then I must get in this because I this to me is what I thought was very endearing about Marty is he starts bragging how he's on the 2013. He said, you know, I'm on the 2013, the record that they did in L.A. You can hear me laughing. I'll bring it in for you. And so in the midst of this huge controversy and he's supposed to be doing the film, he makes them put on the album and we're sitting in the looping in the stage listening to him. He goes, there I am. <laughs> that's me can you hear it that's there i am and um we both you know love mel brooks but no i didn't as we were as the looping sessions were going longer and longer and then he gave me a whole part in the i dubbed someone's whole part so i had like 10 lines and what as we were doing that i remember that one day uh i was going to the elevator and he said where where are you going and i said well i'm and he was going down to the car to go home. And he said, oh, where are you going? You know, and I said, well, I'm going back upstairs to work. And he goes, oh, I, me too. And it was so, 
It's like, I have a feeling he was. And then he got in the elevator and they were both riding the elevator. And then we went upstairs and it was kind of like I was walking along and he was walking along. And I got to the to where my to where Peggy was. And she I looked in and nobody was there. And he was like, oh, is this where you work? And I said, yes. And he goes, is that your little desk? And I was like. Why is Martin Scorsese talking to me? Doesn't he see I have better things to do? So I did get to my desk and kind of like, but it, you know, but it was, um, but no, I would have never, you know, and then I remember having, uh, subsequently having parties and I invited him to my house for a, for a twister party, which he didn't, I wrote him a card saying, you know, all work and no twister is not good for directors or something <laughs> like that. And he declined coming, but he sent me like a bottle of Cristal champagne. And my roommate, of course, was like, oh, yeah, he sent you Cristal. I was like, he, uh, what does that mean? He's like, he likes you. He sent you Cristal champagne. So, but it was, and then I was invited to many movies and things like that. But no, it took me a very long time until, you know, we were friends. I was around and working and I was in New York stories and people were, would comment to me, God, you guys get along so great. And I'm like, he's the best. He's great. But when you're around him and his wife, how did that, how did that go? Was there tension? Well, no, I did not. I was not aware at the, at the premiere of New York stories, I knew that he lived on 662nd Street. And um, he, at the premiere of New York stories, he said he wanted to talk to me about, it was then called Wise Guys. He said, I want you to get the copy of the book Wise Guys and read it and there might be something in it for you. And and uh, he said, you know, and come over to the house and, and uh, talk about it. And I, I said, yeah. And he said, I'm living on, you know, uh, 57th Street. I want to say the per his assistant, she'll give you the address. And I said, oh, you moved. And he said, I said, the, he goes, what? And I said, well, I thought you lived on 62nd Street. You moved to 57th Street. And he goes, you're so naive. And I was like, I don't, what does that mean? You know, of course, then I was like, oh, I think that means living separately. So that's, I know I would have never, ever again imagined, you know, or it wouldn't have been in my, in the realm of my consciousness to anticipate. So I'm sure it's in the book, but tell us the story the moment where you guys uh -huh. realized that, okay, this is more in the friendship. What happened? Um, we'd been friends for a very long, you know, said a couple of years working together and everything. And then, um... He, he asked me out on like a proper date and I, I was actually scared about that. I was like, wow, a date, like a date, like where we go out and talk. Cause up until then we would be, you know, we'd see a movie cause I was invited. He obviously was his staff and everything. And it was great. And you know, I'd be there for hours. And I thought, Oh, a date like that could not, that could be bad because I liked him so much as a person and obviously respected him and obviously wanted to work with him that I would be very, very concerned that that would be a very bad idea. Cause I was, he's obviously he's in a different, you know, world than me. And that 
seemed to be a dangerous thing. And we went out on a on a date, and I think we we literally like they were at the restaurant going like, "Can you two wrap it up? It's like <laughs> four in the morning." Okay, that's You're one of my other us. favorite things about being with the right woman is closing down restaurants. Oh my god, they were like, "Can we? Yeah." Yeah, you both like ice cream. Can you go home now? <laughs> like, so it just, and from probably, and so from that, you know, from that uh, moment, we just, I just realized, you know, that's not to say that it wasn't always a challenge. As I said, write about my book, obviously his career and the stratosphere that he's in, and he is a genius and so very, very talented. And me trying to carve out a career for myself you know, obviously had had its uh, challenges. It's tough to talk about this. The first time I ever saw you was one of the most uncomfortable uh, scenes in a movie theater that I've ever been in in my life, and that was the scene in Cape Fear uh-huh. with De Niro. Yes. I mean, I still get emotional about it. It was just, uh, and so I think to myself, here you are with the, the director, mm-hmm. the man who you're in a relationship with, and he's casting you in a role where it's going to be the most memorable role up to that point that anybody's going to see you. Mm-hmm. And you're being cast as somebody who's being raped and a guy is literally taking a piece of your face and spitting it out. Mm-hmm. How, do you ha- how do you handle that? I mean, not just, not just as an actress, yes. but then you're working with another genius... Robert De Niro in front of the man you're in a relationship with another genius Mm -hmm. in the most vulnerable horrific scene probably and believable scene that you'll ever see in film in your life Mm -hmm. I mean I'm getting emotional I was just thinking about it like how do you I mean how do you how do you handle that I think I mean to me I just looked at it as you know I'd had good training and I did, I mean, I was not naive enough to know that, uh, you know, my credibility was in question. There would be, even though I, you know, I auditioned for New York Stories, I got in New York Stories over other actresses. I auditioned for Cape Fear. I wasn't just handed the role. I mean, you know, um, Bob, you know, Mr. De Niro is obviously, is, you know, as Marty said, like, It's not really, it's not up to me, you know, if Bob, if you don't have chemistry with Bob, like that's it. And so I had, I auditioned for the casting person. Then I did an improv scene, you know, bar scene with, you know, with Bob. And then I was cast in the role. And. But did he know that you were in a relationship with Marty? Yes. Yes. I mean, everybody, it was quiet, but. If you're directing a film, which you've done many times in your life, okay, and there's a man that you're in a relationship with, Mm -hmm. and you have him audition with another man who uh, is in the film that you've cast in the film, Mm -hmm. and the guy knows that you're in a relationship, what's that going to do for your relationship if he says, you know, I don't have chemistry with that person, I don't (laughs) want them in the film, I'm sorry, I know you're directing the film, and I know you're a genius, and I know you've been nominated for several Academy Awards, but I'm a... I don't want your girlfriend in this film. He's never going to say that. Well, no, I knew. I mean, I... I mean, I know you earned the part, and I'm sure by far you blew everyone away. I'm just saying that what person in their right mind is going to say, you know, 
Marty, not now. Okay. It's just like, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do this. I'm sorry if it's damaging a relationship, but I'm not going to do this. That, that would never happen. Well, I don't, I mean, again, I don't know. I think that, you know, I knew, but I had, I had worked in Goodfellas, you know, with Bob a little bit. So I was on the set every day of that film. So another I'm, one of the greatest movies. Of yeah, all time. really. I know. Amazing. Who knew at the time? But I was around every day because we were in a relationship. And again, when I was on the set of Goodfellas, you know, I had had this like little taste of doing stand up. And one of these <laughs> little routines I used to do was called Raging Bullwinkle. <laughs> and Marty would say, oh, do that. You know, because Mar Marty was like a big, you know, he was like a big, he's very funny. They, all these guys are very funny. I think that that's what they, they obviously they appear very intense. But, you know, Bob and Joe Pesci and Marty, they're really, really funny. And so they, uh, Marty said, do that raging bull thing for, for him. And, you know, I'm like, that was nothing was as scary as having Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro standing at me like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, uh, did you <laughs> my wife? And doing like, you know, doing my little routines for them. <laughs> and uh, and so I just was always and I would do I did another thing. Nobody even knows who she is anymore. But with Shelley Winters. Of course, the Shelley Winters, one of my favorite stories about Shelley Winters that's very famous. Uh, most of you, if you're that old, would remember her as an amazing role way beyond when she started in the Poseidon Adventure, which yes. she was nominated for an Academy Award. But before then, she'd already won two Academy Awards, and a yes. famous story of hers was is that a director asked her to audition. And she went to his office and she pulled out both Academy Awards out of her bag and slammed them on his desk and said, here's my f***ing audition. Yeah. So she was, you know, she had been, she would go on talk shows and she was very, you know, the word like blousy, very kind of loud and... And she would throw around the name Bobby all the time. Bobby, Bobby, and I were at the studio, and and I, I, I taught Marilyn how to be sexy, and I, I, and so but they, but Marty would go do your Shelly, do the Shelly winners. I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Bobby said, you know, never have fish off the truck. <laughs> I taught him everything, <laughs> and we'd like. So I was so anyway to get back to Cape Fear. I, you know, I, then I got, I auditioned for this movie called Guilty by Suspicion that Erwin Winkler produced, uh, directed, and Erwin Winkler produced um, uh, Goodfellas, and I had auditioned for a larger part, but I did not get that part, and then they wanted me to be in this, like, pretty thankless role. I played um, Daryl Zanuck's secretary. I mean, I was like, it was like... I've been in like Goodfellas, but Marty, of course, you know, talk about going to every party. No, you're gonna do Sirwin. You're gonna do that film. So I was like, ah, do the film. <laughs> so I was in the scene. I was so hamming it up. I literally have like a, a part that they should have given to you know an extra. <laughs> because they should I have given to a publicist assistant. But I had scenes like, you know, where De Niro, who's playing a kind of a John Garfield type guy who's been blacklisted and his he'd come in and he's he's being black. He's being ostracized. So he'd come up to the desk and he'd be like, is Daryl in? You know, and my line would be like, 
no, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) Something really important like that. And um, I had a lot of those. Like, but I was always, I you know, like there would be a screening, and I'm next to Daryl Zanuck, and I was always like actor studio. I'm like, I would be like hamming it up, (laughs) writing. At one point, Erwin Winkler, I had like I was, I had this, I had my little dress picked out and everything, and I was sitting there. And I had, you know, this little dress on and I was sitting there like this. I had it so posed, you know, I was ready. And everyone goes, cut, cut. He said, Ileana, you're, you are upstaging the whole scene with your legs. <laughs> you have to have them that way. I was like, damn it. <laughs> was, I was trying to upstage Robert De Niro with my legs. <laughs> and uh, so I was sort of a cut up on that. And one day, oh my God, it's so sad. I'm so delusional. But one day, Steven Spielberg and a man named Michael Ovitz, I think we all remember him. He's one of the greatest, you know, agents of all time. They came to visit. For those of you out there in the land, Mike Ovitz uh, started a little company called Creative Artist Agency, CAA. Yes. So you can imagine, like, you're an actor. It's all we're looking for is, like, the big break, that one big break. I'm in a scene with Robert De Niro. Steven Spielberg is watching. Mike Ovitz is watching. I have one line. No, he's not. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm literally like, how am I even going to shoot this thing? And they were like tucked into the corner. Steven Spielberg. I was like, you know how many times I saw Jaws when I was a kid? I was part, I created Jaws. I was in the crowd. Now he's watching me and I have one, I'm an extra. Did you improv a line or something? I did. So what happened was like, you know, so De Niro comes up to the desk. Is Daryl in? And I go, no, he's not. And as he turns to walk around, the camera's still going. I have like, have you seen enough, Mike? Are you ready to sign me? <laughs> this is it. It's all there, right? <laughs> And there was like this weird, like suddenly this moment, like, who the f*** are you? Like, why? And then De Niro just starts cracking up because it was a pretty ballsy move. It was pretty. Have you seen enough, Mike? Talent, right? It was so, I mean, I'll never forget. I only saw that look one other time. And that was on Bless His Heart. And I have deep respect for him. I really admired him. Casey Silver, then, I mean, all my, pardon all my, I'm like Rip Van Iliana. It's like, pardon me while we reference things. Casey Silver was the uh, head of the uh, studio at, um, I'm going blank. Universal. Universal, thank you. But I remember, but Marty was head of Universal Studios. Marty was in a deal with him. And I remember Mike Ovitz, the godfather, came to Marty's house, his townhouse, to convince him to be in a movie, wanted him to do to direct this film with Warren Beatty. And it was like, you know, the godfather paying us a visit. And Casey Silver was there having dinner, and I met Casey Silver, and Marty's at the head of the table. And Mike Ovitz interrupts the dinner to have this business meeting with Marty about, you must direct this picture. And there's he finishes his spiel, and then he says, all right, I've, I've said enough. I will now go. And then I said, I looked up and I said to Mike Ovitz, man, this guy Beatty will do anything to get to me, won't he? <laughs> and, I'll, and bless his heart, Casey Silver's face was like, I'll never forget that face. Like a pure 
fear of like she will never work in Hollywood again. Like, is she insane? And there was like that weird, like again, like Michael always looked at me and he laughed so hard. Bless his heart. He was kind of a fan of mine. I I I was so crazy and ballsy like i just literally didn't care i think because i was like i have no career anyway so i was like just make them laugh but that's how you get to places when you take those risks and you do those things because it's not it doesn't work the normal way all the time you have to take risks the funny thing is and i know i'm gonna circle back anyway those stories when i was doing cape fear is why i knew that you just had to go for it because i was on the set and I didn't, you know, you don't get any help from a crew. Sometimes be, being with a crew, it can be very unnerving. You know, you're not in someone's living room as everybody's laughing at you. It's suddenly, it's like, Mr. Junior, would you like a water? Would you like, you know, and you're just being knocked around. And I'm like, we're going to shoot this thing in like 30 seconds. Nobody has even talked to me. And I I just knew I was going to have to make something important happen. And, and, and I did. We started out doing the bar scene. But I knew that I was going to have to kind of prove myself, and so I I did. And I think that because of that, I you know went up a little a little rung in anybody in everybody's estimation. That scene changed my life just because so you know you have one scene where it's like the tension was just so incredible, and then I think to myself, whose job is it on the set in a situation like that when you're in a scene like that? To let you know that, hey, everything's going to be okay. Whenever you feel uncomfortable, we just stop. We do whatever. This is just acting, and this is what we're doing. Is there anybody who, who does no. that for you? No, no, no. You're, you're, I mean, I felt in that moment, and I again, I write about this. This was like a very crucial moment in my life and in my career, very similar to the Hartford Stage Company. I thought, well, all I have to do is show up. I mean... De Niro's a genius. Marty's a genius. I just have to listen and they're going to tell me what to do. Oh, we're shooting it. You know, like nobody, I was like, nobody said anything. I was thinking like, I'm going to, like we were suddenly just doing it. And I thought I am in deep trouble here. Like I, this is not good. I thought they were going to, you know, I thought I would just have to lean on them. And I realized, you know, for the first time I went back to my trailer and I thought, wow, I'm going to have to really like prepare and think about this and think about what I'm doing in this scene. And I came up with uh, what they, in actors terms, what was called an emotional preparation. Emotional preparation is basically like, you know, you pump a well and in order to get the water out, the water just doesn't come out. You have to kind of pump it. So what you try to do is you, you, you give yourself a set of circumstances, emotional circumstances that get the you know the the juices flowing and it can't just be like i'm going to be angry i'm going to be sad and additionally with that like sanford meisner living truthfully under the given circumstances so my given circumstances in that scene are i'm having an affair with nick nolte he's going to meet me at the bar he stands me up i'm in this relationship with a married man it's not going anywhere and i and i've been humiliated and and I meet this guy at a bar and I'm going to go home with him. And so I made my emotional preparation that I was going, I was going to get him back because I was going to, I was literally going to sleep with the first person who sat down in that stool. 
I didn't care who it was. And I and I knew that. And it doesn't matter where Robert De Niro's character was. Like, so he's, you know, he's going to, you know, beat me up and try to kill me. But I don't know that. And that's not important. All I knew was I had this secret that I knew that whatever happened in the scene that I was going to sleep with Robert De Niro. And that tickled me beyond so anytime the crew guy was like what is this stupid boy is she laughing about like it's just don't you know because i had to do all this laughing i was beside myself because i just was like i know by the end of the scene i'm gonna like you know get to go home with this guy and that was my you know my kind of emotional preparation and then underneath it was the other stuff about well i'll show you know the nick nolte care i'll show him you know that i'm attractive and all that you know he'll be really jealous now that I'm going home with this guy so those are all the things that went into I had to do everything in my power to make that guy at the bar go home with me so I was going to make him laugh I was going to be cute I was going to be a flirt I was going to be really loud and drunken and kind of obnoxious and all of those things we're going to get him to, you know, to go home with me. But I don't think anybody was prepared for what I did that day. Like they were like, it's supposed to be, I think they thought it was just going to be like a little scene. And it turned into this huge scene because suddenly like, you know, De Niro, was, that's what's so amazing about him. He kind of saw what I was doing and it, he, upped his game you know completely and then he and marty started talking and then they set up two cameras and they had us do this whole like improv and so we turned into something that was much um you know that i think was much bigger than they expected but again that's a reflection of also working with marty and working with bob i think you go into it wanting to do something you know that's really um that's really special and and different Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So I want to talk about a few things before I ask you some final questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Let's talk about you created the, one of the most amazing web series ever. Tell me how you decided, hey, I'm going to go from being a film and television respected actress to the world of the web, knowing that you're making these things for $6 in a bucket of chicken and you got to pull favors with everybody you know to get them to act in them. Mm -hmm. How'd you put it all together? Because I encourage people all over the world to just 
just do it. Just get the camera, create something, write something, mm-hmm. put it up there. Because you started at zero, zero, and zero, zero became 40 million. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it started, you know, I started doing, um, when I did, um, I think it was 99, 2000 or whatever, like r- right around the time of action, I did um, uh, the Larry Sanders show. And that was another sort of game-changing moment for me because I was working. Another genius. Just beyond. In fact, I had just gotten out of my relationship with Marty uh, and I was working with Gary and he was just, he's just such a genius and um, really gave me a lot of confidence in myself because we were talking about, you know, he'd say, I want you to just come to the office and just tell me every funny thing that ever happened to you. And John Stewart was the writer, and they were like writing. Another down. genius. Another gen- and Judd Apatow also was. It just was directing the episode. It was the first time he ever directed. He'll be doing the podcast soon. Okay, um, I think that's the first scene he ever Another. directed. Me and me and Gary Shandling in bed. Three geniuses. I know. I've been lucky. So we. That was the first scene he directed. Was you and yeah. Shandling in bed? Yes. I've been on like it's crazy. So he was so you know, they were I was like, this is interesting. They're all I was doing this storyline and I was playing myself, but it was like an exaggerated version of myself. And then uh Gary, we had this one scene and I, I there was some reason it felt like that he had hired me and I thought I'm just gonna go for it, you know. So we did this one scene and I just I went off book, you know, and I started, I mean, that and it was, things were sort of loose anyway, but well, I started the, yelling at him, you know, and that became the famous, when he looked at me, I thought he was going to punch me in the face and he said, I'm all f***ed up. And it was like, I was started to cry and he started to cry. I was like, this is, what's happening? It was like a real Cape Fear Marty moment. When he said that, it was like everything on the set, like just stopped and uh, I knew that, you know, that that's why I was there. I was a catalyst to get that out of him, I think, in some ways. And I, that was, you know, because of that, I think, is when I started kind of taking a stab at, you know, at writing again and writing, you know, my own material. And then I had done the... Um, the Ileana Rama show, which you know about, and then that. Which I, I, I worked on with you briefly. Yes. And then after that, it didn't, I ended up showing the show, you know, which had gone through a lot of challenges with the executives. Again, it's just not, we were just not on the same page. And that was, if you don't mind, as I said across from you, the most important thing in anything you do is to have relationships with people. And there's going to be things where you get the shit kicked out of you. And sometimes you get the shit kicked out of you and you don't even understand why because you're not in, you're not present in how things are going. And I was happened to be fortunate enough to work with Liliana on this project that was such a great project and uh, with an associate of mine. And um, we weren't clicking with Liliana. And she uh, made it a point to tell me, and she was very polite and very wonderful, and she actually met with us and she said, listen, this isn't working. 
I need to be empowered here and the energy here isn't empowering. I know what it was, but I don't want to talk about it right here. But, <laughs> but the main thing was I knew that she really cared about me. I knew that she liked me. And I knew that I knew that she thought that I could still be a part of something, but there was another entity attached to it that I, she didn't feel that way for. That was on me. And here it was my first thing I ever brought to this the table in this new company that I was doing. And I was removed from the project. And but I never stopped loving mm-hmm. what you do. I never stopped loving where and every time I saw you. I always felt comfortable seeing you. I always felt comfortable being around you and I never felt any uncomfortability and I all I wanted to do was see you win and hope that you won. So I just want yeah. to tell that backstory that so there's going to be times in your career and everybody's career where things happen and they don't work. You're with a person they don't work, but you have to make sure that you maintain that relationship with them because you never know what's going to happen mm-hmm. in the future and I know that uh, you wouldn't be here right now if you didn't feel comfortable with me. And, oh, no. And like you said, there's, as always in these things, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you look back on a project and, and it, you know, it's, a, it's when you're the talent and you are also a writer and producer, it is literally almost physically impossible. I just don't know how you do it because people, there were other, there were mitigating circumstances in that I had people that I was, I was assigned a showrunner. The network we were at was probably not the right network, but in my, I think that the the biggest mistake that I made was in my zest to try to get something done. I got, which I would not do now. I got involved with people that messed my head up a little bit in terms of. Yeah. And the only thing I remember saying to you when I met with you, and it's always been my thing as a manager or producer. I don't know why this is. I always felt of myself as you can probably laugh at this, but I always thought of myself as a dream maker. Mm -hmm. You come to me, you tell me what you want, Mm -hmm. and I'll make it happen. Mm -hmm. You want the show sold, I will get you in the room, I will figure out a way how to sell it. But after that, there's more to it than at that point in my career than after that. And that's the thing. Now, this could be, we're going to go off topic here, but tell me what happens, because you see, you're going to understand this. This is what happens in success you have a lot of Iagos whispering in your ear. Of course. And it becomes, you don't know who to believe anymore. And I saw this happen with Jay on action. You're holding up a show, you know, and in this sense, like I'm writing the show, it's my show. And you've got people and they're calling, they're saying one thing and you don't know who to believe anymore. And see, that kind of stuff doesn't happen to me anymore. You know, I was younger then and stupid because I was swayed by people's opinion. And that's what I regret is that when you are, that's what to me, that if I was going to give advice, it's kind of like you can't get involved in office politics or office gossip. It is death. Because everybody has an agenda, and I was very naive. And if somebody said something to me, like, well, you know what he's saying about you behind your back? Like, I actually would take that to heart. I'd be like, you're kidding. That is how, that's terrible. And I didn't realize, like, oh, people are just manipulating you to get what you want. And that, what was interesting about that show was it was, it, 
I just got involved with people that I should not have gotten involved with. You know, and I have respect for them and for what they do, but it was like, you know, the first acting teacher. They would have never, uh, you know, thought things that I thought were funny. I mean, you know, we had a knockdown, drag out fight about Jane Lynch. You know, that was like, to me, I, I was like, Jane Lynch had, you know, this was way, way before she had broken. And I wanted her to be in the show and they had somebody else in mind and they led me down a garden path and they said, uh, well, all she has to do is come in and meet. I was like, ah, this is a friendship ender. This is, I, you know, and then she came in and met me. Yeah, we don't think so. I was like, guys, this is, you know, those kind of things were, you know, when you're dealing with people like Goldblum or Jane that you're, you're friends with, you go, if he doesn't come in and do you understand how, what a huge favor this is. And, and it was a challenge of after doing that show, I just figured like I wasn't right for television. And then again, the right person at the right time, because I will get to easy to assemble. It was a miracle. Uh, Brian De Palma came back into my life. I'd known him from working at Peggy's and also through Marty. And he just happened to be in town and he wanted to see the show and I said, it's horrible. And it didn't, you know, they ended up getting rid of me. <laughs> you know, I remember it was something I had Brian's editor, um, a woman who's gone on to huge claim of fame now working with Judd Apatow. Her name has left me, but we, uh, she was our editor on it. And uh, I, they ended up getting rid of me and recutting it and stuff and uh i had the versions of the pilot and i showed it to brian de palma and he said there's something to this idea you gotta you have to stick with it and uh he told me he said you know if you thought about the internet this was in 2005 i was like the internet like what is what is that and just so the audience knows the idea was essentially a I'll say it was a stretch to believe, but it was possible. It was about actors who were sort of, you know, the times when they were down in their careers taking jobs at a particular supermarket in the in Hollywood Bel Air yeah. kind of uh, area and uh, where all the rich people were. And the hope was if they could just be in that supermarket and be seen by people who are important, maybe they, their careers would go on the right track again. Right. And then, but there was also an underlying, like she, you know, my character is fed up with show business because she wants more meaning in her life and, you know, uh, goes to the supermarket and then unbeknownst to her, all these other actors are already working there. And, uh, and she finds herself, what I thought was the most important part is she finds herself battling. She, you know, the same things in the supermarket that she was true, that she hated about being. Well, in. That's right. And it was just a great, great concept. So we saw, we saw that. And then, um, uh, I put it on the, uh, on the internet and the, on YouTube. And, and because there has at that time, 2005, there was literally no celebrities in any kind of internet type show and so we cut it up and here was you know Goldblum and all these other people and um and it got a lot of views it won a tv guide award which now every award I ever win is then non-existent it's like <laughs> they were up for one year I won the tv guide award um and then the strike happened right and then the, the big internet 
And while it was up there, it caught the eye of an advertising agency, a guy um, uh, named Fred Dubin. I always credit him because he was the one who saw it. Again, the most bizarre coincidence. He had met me up at Sundance because apparently one night I was like had had a lot of drink or something, I guess, and I was singing Cat Stevens songs. Show up, everybody. Yeah. And he said, I thought, he goes, I, you know, when I heard your name, I thought that time I saw you at Sundance and I thought she would be someone fun to get into business with. And the next thing I knew, I was meeting with Ikea and the idea was that we we're supposed to do interstitials for them. They had just done a series with this comedian spending the night at, I, at Ikea and they wanted to do something to broaden their brand and make it not so much about college students and so I had come up with a little idea of like, oh, we could do these little love vignettes at Ikea. And the more I was talking to the guy, the more in the back of my head I was thinking about the show. And I said, well, what if we just do this thing where I go work at Ikea? And Jeff Goldblum is in it and Justine Bateman. And, and I remember that the Swedish Ikea executive leaned forward and he goes, Jeff Goldblum at Ikea? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think I could. I think I could get him in it because we had done this movie called Pittsburgh, which really is a mockumentary. And I had done a lot a, of... Which is a great uh, a film, which is actually showing at Phil Rosenthal's house. Yes. Coming up this Sunday. We're going to re be reliving it. And I had done a lot, like, writing the plot of that. And uh, I said... I So I called Jeff and I said, listen, can you do me a huge favor? Like, will you... I'll do Pittsburgh. Will you be in this web series? And it was unheard of to get, you know... Jeff Goldblum, major celebrity in a web series. And so we, that first year, I called in favors from uh, Tom Arnold and Robert Patrick. Who, by the way, Tom Arnold, there's a lot of things that are said about certain actors because of their personal lives or how they handle their personal lives. But I will just share this. If no one knew anything about Tom Arnold and just saw him in a dramatic film or... Uh, any film where he puts it out there, unbelievable actor. He's great. I adore Tom. He knows that we've been, um, you know, longtime friends. We've been, there was a, there was many years ago, we were in a movie called Hacks where he was at the height of his career. And uh, I remember like visiting his house. We were all impressed because he had a television in his bathroom. We thought that was like the height of like, when I'm famous, I'm going to do, I'm going to have a TV in my bathroom. And I did. Like then I ran into him years later. I was like, do you know that the minute I had a big house, I was like, no, I want that closet out. I want a big TV right in the bathroom. But um, uh, we were in a bunch of movies together. We kept getting cast in movies together and we, I adore him. He was very sweet and caring guy. Um, and he, you know, so we had a, we were appearing together a lot in public. He was single at the time, going through a divorce. So he would ask me to go to a lot of public events with him. So I used to tease him saying I was like his pretend girlfriend while he would try to get a real girlfriend. But I was like his public persona girlfriend. And so we mock that. And so, so much of the show for Ikea, they just literally... You know, I wrote the script and it was 40 pages. I sent it to them and the guy had literally, you know, we sat down, he had a note and I was like, all right, here we go. Notes. I know what this is like. And he said, uh, yeah, the we don't uh, sell ice cream. It's uh, frozen yogurt. And I said, oh, OK, frozen yogurt. And then he goes, that's it. 
<laughs> and I said, what? what? <laughs> he goes, good stuff. Good stuff. And I was like, the next thing I know, we're shooting at Ikea with like Robert Patrick and doing all this crazy, like using the shoppers. It was like gorilla doing dance numbers at Ikea and completely insane and you know in 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 fact like i uh, you know there were jokes that had not made it into the uh, pilot you know when i did the pilot that i put in the you know that i put in the in the show and then it really it just weirdly took off i uh, i mean there were no celebrities in fact it's funny there was nothing, a backlash nothing weirdly takes yes. off America speaks. They either like it or they don't. Well, it really took off on the internet. And in fact, the only thing that was funny about it was there was a backlash of like, celebrities are ruining the internet. You know? <laughs> that was the only, we want to just see cats. Um, <laughs> but the show really took off and then Ikea doubled the budget. And the next year, again, what was amazing about it. Was did you get free Ikea furniture? No, everybody asked me that. I wish I did. I used to joke you put that, that I, in the contract. I used to joke that I got IKEA furniture, which I immediately sold on Craigslist because <laughs> it was a great way to meet college guys. But uh, uh, no, I never got anything free. Uh, but they, so we did the, and the second year really galvanized because of working with all the people from IKEA. A very strange thing started to happen. I started to fall in love with a work environment. And I started to see this metaphor that I was putting myself together, that I, Ileana Douglas, with all these crazy career things, this and that, had found uh, a place, a little haven in which I was going to be able to learn how to write and direct and be a producer and not get any notes. And I, I, I that's what I needed because the, the experience... Jumping out of the gate and having my first show, being inundated with notes to the point that I was like, I don't think I can do this. This is like, come up with 10 jokes about ice cream. You know, like the first one was the funniest joke, like because you need something to say. Like I didn't, I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, you know, I'd gone through years of like working with, you know, people like Marty and we're all in doing and then suddenly... I was in a, I would be in a meeting and the executive, you know, we were talking to someone and they left the room and he leaned over to me in a room full of people. He said, you know, you come off as arrogant, you know that, right? And it was like, he said it in front of all the people that I was working with. And I was just like, I need to go home now. Like, I just, this is such a difficult office politics situation. It has nothing to do with like, we're just talking about what's funny or not funny or whatever. And that was kind of spirit breaking. So the Ikea doing the second show and the third show, I just, because we were doing really well and we were doing really well at Ikea, my executive there, whose name was uh, Magnus Gustafsson. I mean, again, I'm, I am blessed that he, he did not interfere with the show. I mean, by the third season, we had like cross-dressing Craig Bierko as the third Bateman, the untalented one, <laughs> kidnapping Justine and going on in her place. I was like, what does this have to do with furniture? But, you know, Ikea was so, they just, they never gave me notes. They just let me, 
exercise all my demons. And I and in four years, by the time we did the fourth year, this which was called This Side Up, my care, you know, Tom Arnold stages an intervention to get me to go out of Ikea because I realized it had become such a safe place for me that I was like, I, I have to start doing movies now and books. But it felt so good just to... You know, I just read Patton Oswalt's book and I really loved it. Um, and he talks about a period in his life about being a stand-up at Largo and he didn't want to be do stand-up anymore. Largo is a small, small space uh, on Fairfax in Hollywood across from uh, Cantor's, a famous delicatessen. Yeah. And there was... And now they moved it, I believe, to a nicer yeah. place. So. And it's still... And it's never quite the same as it was. Yeah, not the same. You know, you come in at 10 o'clock at night and you see somebody like, you know, Paul Tompkins or Drew Carey or Greg Proops or Patton just kill. But it was like this small little elitist group. And he was talking about in the book how it became very safe and, you know, you didn't want to go to the comedy store because that felt like selling out. And after four years of working with the Ikea show and I was getting like pretty substantial budgets, I was like, I could, I'll just be Miss Ikea girl, <laughs> you know? And then but people were saying to me, you got to write like movies now and books and do. And I realized like that after for four years that they had given me all the tools as a writer, director, producer. We were a union show. We did a lot of stuff. We, you know, we worked with people that it would be that I was not I would not be living up to my full potential, that it was time to go back into the arena of, you know, of doing other of doing other things, which I have. But I definitely miss the ability to just write a script and send it to actors that you love, you know, like Roger Bart, Keanu Reeves, and just have them love your material and do your material, which is, again, is a really, you know, nice thing. And learn on your own what is funny and what's not funny. And I, I learned on my own to be a writer I, I without criticism. And that's good because now I can take criticism. But at the time, I just had to learn how to be, you know, a good writer and write plots and stuff. Fantastic. One. One. Two. Six degrees of separation. We've been here a long time, so we'll yes. do a little six degrees of separation, a sort of wrap like up. a little wrap up thing, a little yep. night and day thing, a little kind of like, a, I don't know how to say it, but like I'm going to mention a name of somebody and I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. It could be a little tiny story, could be oh two words, could be one word, could be don't make me cry. a story, something. <laughs> okay. Yes. Ethan Hawke. Oh my goodness. Well, I write him, uh, I have to do it briefly. Uh, just authentic. You talk about authentic. He, Ethan, is the person that I have always wanted to be. I just have so much admiration for him. I write about him in the book extensively. He t totally changed my life in terms of you know I was I signed on to do this movie, and it was a wonderful movie and I had a great experience. It was action and we were on it for four months, but. Um, Spending time with Ethan, I realized that I was already going into a path of just, you know, it was so exciting to be an actress and to be able to pay the rent that I was like, I, I that's all I wanted to do. I mean, I had no aspirations. All my aspirations starting out of like stand up, sketch comedy just was like, can, you know, I was like, I'm going to be a movie star. Screw this. And then being on Alive and being with Ethan and. Tell us the movie. Uh, alive. Oh, it was Alive. I'm sorry. Yeah. 
his love of music and I uh, and we were talking about movies and Cassavetes and it really reignited in me this idea of wanting to be a filmmaker. I mean, we we had these you know late night talks about films and and uh, and you know I I just always thought that he has stayed true to his ideals in a business that's very difficult to do that. You know, he's done Broadway and he's um, done films of great merit and has had longevity. And um, I just admire him. And he he was really, uh, really inspirational for me. Juliet Lewis. Oh, Juliet Lewis from Cape Fear? Yes, because I ask you because... You were a 15-year-old going through crazy times, and now here you're on the set with a 15-year-old who's experiencing a crazy, crazy... What existence. I remember about Juliet was seeing her with her that with her unknown then-boyfriend, Brad Pitt, on the set of Cape Fear, and she was like... No, no, no. She was, like, savvy, because she was, was, like, a child actress. She was like, they better get us per diem. And, they, you know, she was like, no, she was an old pro. I was. So she channeled Shelly Winters through her, too. Yes, possibly. No, I was intimidated. I was like, I'm always. I'm you like, were intimidated what? by her. Totally. Because I thought I should be more like that. I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking about my, like being a good actor. Who cares? It's like my agent's got me booked on this and that. And she was like. She had it going on, like agents, this and that. I never had an agent or anything. I was such a half-assed career. But she was really like... She You've was, had was agents. A, Stop it. I have, yeah. Or they've died or hung <laughs> themselves. In the woods. Yeah. Uh, Drew Carey. Oh, my God, Drew. I adore Drew. What a, what a dear person. Drew Carey, he, the first man I kissed post uh, getting a divorce. I was doing the Drew Carey show, and I was cast as his girlfriend, and I was such a huge fan of that show. I think it was a very underrated show. I love I love the Drew Carey show, and I used to see Drew at Largo. Big fan of his, and then um, I got cast on the show, and uh, I totally had a crush on him because he was he was just adorable. You know, not as a not really thinking anything of it but i we were doing we had all these scenes we had this scene where we were in a sleeping bag it was so stupid like showbiz we're supposedly we're out in the woods bringing back to the woods (laughs) where supposedly the joke is is that these raccoons are watching us you know make love in a soup in a sleeping bag and it was not an easy thing to do but anyway i said to him no this is kind of exciting for me because i'm like you be like literally you're gonna be like the first man that I get to kiss post divorce and then we had a scene and where he was supposed to kiss me and right before the take and he said uh can I go for it I was like go for it <laughs> <laughs> so he came he came back in and I think that I had to put a beer down a beer down and, and he just you know bent me over kissed me the audience went crazy. And I always, so I'm always thinking, I literally, and then I was supposed to talk and I was like, I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say now. Stop it. And the audience went crazy and it was fun. I loved doing that show. He was, it was really, really great. It was a great experience. Terrifying because we would do the show and then again, another feeling about a comic, we would do the written show. And then at midnight, you know, the writers would come with lines on napkins. Okay. Now you're going to say this. Now say this. 
Now say this, you know, I was like, I you didn't even know what was happening, but it was it was fun. Amy Poehler. Oh my God, Amy. Well, I just read her books. Great book. Um, you know, again, a very authentic person who I always, of course, admired from SNL. And she produced the Welcome to Sweden, which I'm on. So I'd never met her. Ikea Sweden. Ikea Sweden, which I got because we needed, I had a Swedish agent getting me Swedish actors when we did ETA. And I said, hey, if anything ever comes up. And then sure enough, Greg Poehler, you know, through that, I'm on the show and I got to meet Amy in um, in uh, uh, Sweden. And so we got to hang out a bit. And I just think it's again, it's admirable that her, you know, her producing uh, these shows, it, it, you know, they're not like cookie cutter shows. This isn't the easiest show in the world to come on board and go, I'm going to put it, you know, I'm going to. Yeah, that's what I'm going to. I'm going to put my name. You know, it could have failed. And so I admire that greatly that she um, um, took a hold of it. And, I, and also Parks and Rec has really developed into I think, you know, a really interesting show. But I think she's just beginning, and I admire her greatly. Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus is, again, a, just my goodness. He is the person that when I was growing up, I most pretended to be because I I, I saw Jaws, and I, I, I just, I, to me, he was like a big kid, and I wanted to be, it was like I wanted Richard Dreyfus to be either my friend, like my best friend, or I wanted to be Richard Dreyfus because he seemed so confident. So when in doubt, when I was in acting school, I would always pretend to be him. And then, um, and then I got cast in a movie with him, and which was literally almost impossible because it was such a serious film, and I was so miscast. What's the name of that? It was called Lansky, and mm-hmm. I played Mrs. Meyer Lansky. And I, the the director of the film, kept saying to me, "You sound like Barbara Streisand." I was like, "I, well, I'm, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm Italian. <laughs> I'm not." But anyway, I did act with Richard Dreyfus, and I kept getting laughing fits and. I said he he's very funny. I can't help it. I'm sorry, but we eventually became friends, and I brought him into the Turner Classic Movie Fold, and so I've interviewed him many times. And I again, he's just a, a person with an amazing uh, career, and st- who started out with smaller parts, did episodic television, Gunsmoke, The Big Valley, and has a career. And again, it's just someone whose career I admire tremendously marlon brando well marlon brando is in the i'm it's we've you know we've run out of time barry he's in the book but uh marlon brando definitely changed my life he impacted my life um he he called me a tuning fork and then (laughs) you'll have to see what that means in the book but again i think he identified something in me which has happened to me my whole life where I can't identify what it is, but someone comes along and says, you're a tuning fork, and it will take me years to sort of figure out what something like that means. But I, he's a mystic. Marlon Brando is truly a mystic, and you shake. You know, there, I, I, there, there hasn't been anybody except for maybe George Harrison, but Marlon Brando especially, where it's like it just feels like an earthquake is happening when you, when you meet him. A few more here. Liza Minnelli. Well, Liza Minnelli was my, my whole, re, you know, reason for wanting to get into show business. She was like, I looked at her as a kid 
It was like there was a period of time where she was dating Peter Sellers. Another like, genius. Peter Sellers. And I was like, yeah, that is, I mean, with the hair and the body and dancing in Studio 54 and dating Martin Scorsese and, you know, I, that to me, uh, friends with Halston, like, I, you know, that. And then she would do all that and then get on stage and have this just amazing voice. And I still think Cabaret, and years later I got to meet her again through Turner Classic Movies and tell her that. But, you know, Cabaret was, again, a re that film was one of the reasons I wanted to be in show business. That is just an incredible film and a performance. I can't stop myself. Keep I'm going. Sorry. Keep going. I can't going. stop myself. Roddy McDowell. Ah, oh. Well, Uncle Roddy, as I used to call him, was uh, I miss him and I think of him every day. He dramatically changed my life because he was the person who told me that I needed to start keeping journals. He, so he gave me my first journal. Talk to our audience about what that means to keep a journal. I mean, in terms of this profession. I If I didn't keep a journal, uh, in terms of writing down the experiences that I had, when I wrote my book, I went back again and again to my journal for actual stories, actual quotes, things that people really said. You know, you're for, you're, things change so dramatically. You know, when you, so you can actually reference films that you were in. I, part of the reason I did it was, you know, was to look. It was so important for me to document um, being in movies because I thought it was such a privilege and I didn't want to forget it. It was like if I'm going to meet Robert Mitchum, yeah, I'm going to have him sign something so I can like look at this forever and ever and. And remember that day and call back, you know, call, call back those days. And I think there's something more uh, contemplative about writing than than maybe typing, you know. But I still keep journals to this day. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, I, I write every every morning. I try to document just one thing that a person says, you know, like we were, we were talking about George Lopez and we were on the set and I said, what's the best thing that a comedian could ever hear? Like if you, you know, what's the compliment? Cause I told him, I, I sort of saw the show and I was very, I said, I've seen many comedians. I said, I was very impressed with you. I said, but I feel ignorant. Like when you're looking at artwork and you don't know what to say to the artist, you're like, I like it. It moves me. And I said, what's the best thing I could say to a comedian? And he got very serious and he goes, you're a funny mother. <laughs> and it was like one of those moments that I was like to go home I, w I mean I remember that story because it was a week ago but to go home and write it down we were standing in the kitchen of the Mirage Hotel you know like that gives you context and the way his face looked when he said it and that's why I think it's important to keep a journal if you want to be a writer Kelsey Grammer uh, Kelsey Grammer was a was a boy. You pulled it. That was again just like a funny, just in the heyday of wanting to experience everything. I got asked to be uh, on Frasier, and it was just you know just a great, just a great experience in and out. I was like, I just I did all of those, I did all of those shows. Worked with all the greats. Judd Apatow. Well, Judd Apatow, as we were saying before, I, he. He did, uh, 
That was his first directing, me and Gary Shandling in bed. And he had worked with Ben Stiller. They had done like a riff on Cape Fear. And I remember they sent it to Marty, you know, in a little VHS. And uh, when I met him, I said, you know, Marty saw, I was where he saw, he liked it. He was like, I'm talking to like, I she, what? He <laughs> saw that. Yeah, I said, yeah, we watched it. Battery will put in a little tape, you know, Judd Apatow watched it. And so then we, um, uh, and that was, and then we did the, you know, and then we did the show together. And look at it. What happened to him? Where Where is he now? <laughs> Another guy back then, John Stewart. Oh, John Stewart. I am so, you know, that's interesting and complex because he used to guest host for Tom Snyder. And when I, and I did that show a few times and he would guest host and he was so, such an amazing interviewer. And again, so much more depth at the time he had been in a couple movies that hadn't done very well. And I, and as satirized on Larry Sanders was sort of like the next big thing. And then it was kind of like, ah, it's not going to happen for you. You're over. And so he, you know, he was on writing assignment. Larry Sanders, just, you know, just a funny, good, good guy. And so I think, again, he's one of those people that gives you hope because it's like you th you think like, wow, this is, I mean, again, I don't think anybody, first of all, expected the show to do well. Then he becomes like a cultural icon, literally changing comedy forever, you know, um, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty impressive. Absolutely. Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah Jessica Parker, sadly, I have, I have never, I, I developed a script with, um, <laughs> with the writer and they, they, I, I was very excited <laughs> and they said, we've, you know, uh, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is we've signed Sarah Jessica Parker. The bad news is you're fired. <laughs> and they fired me. It was my developed the script. <laughs> This great part for myself and Matt Dillon. I was developing it for me and Matt Dillon. And they it was ended up being Sarah Jessica Parker and um, Harry Gonick Jr. And I never, the only time I have ever met Sarah Jessica Parker was once before this happened backstage at Conan O'Brien. And I, I wish her well and, you know... Uh, I didn't get to meet her on the set. Sadly, I was not invited <laughs> to the, to the uh, set. Joe Pesci. Oh, just a doll. I mean, again, just a very, uh, you know, so so important to Goodfellas. And I just, again, just a very interesting, uh, you know, dynamic person. It's a shame he's not working anymore because I, I think of him as, you know, Raging Bull, of course, and goodfellas casino and his presence is i feel as if his presence is is lacking in films he was very and and also he um he taught me to always put butter in my tomato sauce he's a very good cook and a good singer all good right singer. god this is fun i want to do we do a hundred more of these jay moore well jay of course is just a doll that was love at first sight we, we met on picture perfect which was a kind of a complicated set. And uh, and we sort of bonded on that movie. Uh, and uh, so years later when we got to meet, uh, you know, on, on action, 
I think that it was, um, you know, we were all set to really, I just thought we were, it was really going to be some, you know, rock and roll. Because, you know, he's dark, obviously, he's a comedian. And there, that show was really, had we gone into the next season, I really think it could have been amazing and dark and funny and crazy. And again, somebody who's so much more talented than I think than, than the world knows, you know, and um, that right thing will come along for him if he wants it. Not that it's important to be successful, but I think that that right thing will come along, you know, for him. I, re- I never forget when Glenn Gordon Karen on Picture Perfect, he saw Jerry Maguire before it came out. And he was so impressed with Jay Moore based on seeing Jerry Maguire. And, and the movie hadn't even come out yet, you know, and, and he was like a, just a force of nature. And he, you know, and he was. So that's Jay. Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. I haven't, you know, since Picture Perfect, what's happened to her? Now, another person that, you know, was just at the height of her career and uh, really was somebody that wanted to be successful and has remained successful. And I admire that about people that, you know, that want to be successful. And she's in Office Space, which may be still my favorite Jennifer Aniston performance, I think. Robert De Niro. Well, you know, what can you say? He's, I, I believe he is the greatest living actor that we have. I just, that's my personal feeling and I there's somebody I think is number two but I don't want to say it but in the same zone but I believe that Robert De Niro is still he's it for me I I, I think I personally think Martin Scorsese let me let me no. I want to say this I want to say this the right way because I always hack, but I want to say this the right way because I always mispronounce his name Martin Scorsese Scorsese yes get it right Thank you. Get it right. Um, well, again, it's we'd say this, you know, we bandy about, but he's, uh, you know, a genius and a film historian and someone that obviously will be, you know, remembered uh, for his films and has, you know, gotten, in, you know, will be a cultural uh, touchstone and reference for films, for, you know, forever. Do you still talk? Uh, through films, through fi- through films, yes. Through films, yes. <laughs> through films, we're not. I, I, it's not. It's not that we're not talking. It's not like a showbiz. I just think that our paths have not crossed. But I, I, I believe and I hope that uh, you know that we would be working together again on some project. We both work, uh, do things for Turner Classic Movies. So I can imagine that we'll hopefully maybe be doing something with film restoration. Or something like that. Your biggest disappointment that you turned into something positive in oh, show business. Jeez, that's a tough one. Let me think about that. Probably, you know, I've definitely had. I I I mean, I go back to I've definitely been fired, you know, and I think that the biggest it's it's just a general. I can't say one thing. So have I been fired too? Yeah, yeah. is that I don't. Uh, I don't take it personally or hold a grudge about it. I try to be very much like that. I know that our paths will, you know, will meet again. 
Um, oh, okay. I thought of my biggest disappointment that I turned into a positive. I was fired. I was fired from a, uh, there was a play that I actually developed. I won't say the name of it, but I developed the play in, uh, out, out of state and I had done Cape Fear and, uh, when and we took it on the road, went to Baltimore, and then we went to Washington. And then the play got bought by the Manhattan Theater Club, which was like a big deal. And as we were coming in New York, they fired me. They got rid of me. And then they got somebody else, and it didn't work out. And they asked me to, like, come back with, like, no notice to come back into the play. And all my all my agents and everybody, nobody wanted me to do it. They were like, screw them. Let them fall on their face. And I said, no, nah, I'm not. You know, the, the director called me and he said, what can I say? And we made a mistake. And, and so I went back in to do the play, you know, to be a hero. I just thought, I'm going to do this. This will be this will be interesting. And I came, you know. I came back in and and uh, it was very, it was like being dead. It was like dead man walking. I'm back. And, um, you know, I wasn't a jerk about it or anything. It was like, I just, I came back in and I thought, well, this is going to, this will be a challenge. This will be, because they were, they were dead. They had put somebody in the role and they, you know, so they were freaking out. So I just thought, you know, if I can go in and do this and be a hero, um, you know, they'll they'll appreciate it. And they'll they'll be, a, you know, I'll be a professional and be a trooper. So I think that I always try to, that's my general, my general rule. Your proudest moment in show business. Interviewing Jerry Lewis. Truly. That was truly my proudest moment. I was backstage and we'd worked together and I'd seen his act many times, and I asked him if I could set him up on a joke. And he said, "What? What would you say?" And I said, "Well, I I know you've got the parrot joke." I said, "What if I say something like, you know?" And we were back, and I was that was literally my proudest moment. I could cry just thinking about it. That 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 somebody like Jerry Lewis was going to let me be his straight man, setting up a joke which I could bungle. You know, I could bungle it um, in front of and at the El Capitan before the Nutty Professor, and he and, and when we were backstage, he was coaching me, and he was like, "How are you going to say it?" And I said, "Well, I'll say something like," and he was like, Co "No, don't say that part. Say that part." And that was literally like, and then somebody came in and took our picture, and that is like that picture's in my in my book because that to me is like. You know, you love comedians. I love comedians. To have a comedian trust you, to not screw up their act. To have a genius trust you. That's true, too. Was uh, truly my, that for me, truly my proudest moment. Absolutely, without a doubt. All right, last question. What advice do you have for the young artist who's uh, growing up as a dirty hippie somewhere in the world or or any other kind of lifestyle and they just are hoping to figure out a way to navigate through this crazy career and get to the point where you are as not only a respected actress, writer, director, producer, what do they have to do to, to get to that level? Well, my practical advice, which I always tell everybody, is work for free or for almost nothing. I never worked as a waitress. Oh, you know, when I went to New York, nobody... 
you know, everybody was working as a waitress and they never had time to audition. And I, you know, I worked for a film publicist. I made like no money. I got like, you know, $50 a day, I think. And I would work maybe 12 hours a day. And I would, I would ask all the time, is there anything else you need me to do? Would you like me to do this? And the interesting thing is, it's like people, you know, when you work for free, people always accept that, you know, they, and, and oftentimes people come to work for me as an assistant and they're like, well, I need $20 because my boyfriend, and I'm like, I don't want to hear about your personal life. Okay. Like, like, you know, it's so, I'm so old school in that way that, you know, uh, when I had my when the boss, Peggy Siegel, I, you know, I knew how overwhelmed they were. And I said, if you like, I could call some of the actors and just literally ask them questions for the press kit. And maybe I'll get some interesting answers out of it. Maybe I won't. But they would look at me and they'd go, you want to do that? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So I would come up with jobs that people would look at it and they'd go, you know, this is actually... Pretty good. I didn't know Swizzy Kurtz grew up next to Bob Hope. How did you find that out? You know, so I would find jobs like that to do. And so I always say, like, to work for free, be an intern or something around people. That's number one. And then number two is, and it sounds, you know, it's easy, but it's always to have goals. And once you reach those goals, to have new goals because you know, like being famous is not a goal. I think, you know, anybody can be famous. It's not, you know, if you really want to be famous, maybe that is your goal, but being, you know, having a goal is really, I think is really, really important. Um, and whatever that is. And then once you, once you reach those goals, you're like, ah, crap, what am I going to do now? You know? And, uh, I think, I mean, do you have goals? Do you have? Yes, I do. I have yeah. them every day because I always say to myself that it's all going to go away tomorrow if I don't work harder, work smarter, mm -hmm. work longer hours and try to figure out how to get to the next level. It's hard because when you're, when you're manager, sometimes you, you're, your main thing is you have goals for your artist that you work with. That's right. the main thing because they have their bucket list mm -hmm. and you your only job is to check off the things on their bucket list. Mm -hmm. And as you're doing that, you realize those are some of the things on your bucket list. Mm -hmm. But to be able to sit across from you, I mean, I just think to myself, you have worked with more geniuses <laughs> than I can even think of anybody else that I've talked to. And mm -hmm. I say to myself, there's a reason why geniuses are attracted to Ileana Douglas. Hmm. And it has to be because within you, they see a genius looking back at them. Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know that. I've, I've got a long time. I've got to live up to some, you know, i got to live up to my potential. I haven't, you know, scratched the surface of that. I admire people that... You know, like we were talking about John Stewart, Judd Apatow, all these people that I admire. You know, they've done Albert Brooks, Elaine May, Mike Nichols. You know, they've done so many things, and um, and I think that it, I would like to contribute in some way to my, you know, to my craft, 
whether it's talking about films or film history or even in this, like storytelling, you know, it's very important to remember people's names and talk about film history and all the people that were involved. And, you know, we're forgetting all these people in there. You know, even when we're talking about, like, you know, Mike Ovitz, it's like, yeah, he created a little thing. It's called Creative Artist Agency, you know. Well, I can guarantee you after this podcast is over, our audience is always going to remember your name. <laughs> this has been so amazing. This has been Thank one you. of the most unique interviews I've ever done in really? my entire life. Interesting. And I, I loved yeah. it. And I know people are thinking of this as like war and peace, this podcast, but it's so seamless talking to you. It's so beautiful, and I thank you so much for doing this. I thank you. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and if you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.